0: All right, okay, good morning, I'm Kotz, we are in part five of a series called Revealing Jesus because you guys, and by you guys I mean like four of you, said, hey, let's jump into the deep end of the pool and talk about Revelation, and I said yes. So um, we had an intro sermon five weeks ago, and then since then we've been talking about different themes, and uh, what we've discovered so far is that there are themes that started in the book of Genesis and has been threaded through all the rest of the Bible and the, the loose ends get tied up in the book of Revelation. So today we're talking about theme number four, which is the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast. The beast. And um, you're like, There's, there are beasts in the Bible? It's like, yes, as a matter of fact, last week when we did meet together, but we did it online, we talked about theme number three, which was the dragon. Now, the dragon. Um, I want to do a quick recap. It's going to be like a one-minute recap, okay? Because we don't. Want, we have like 80 plus slides to get through. Um, the 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 dragon is also a character, a figure, a symbol in the Bible, which I don't think a lot of pe- people know that. You know, if you just casually read the Bible, you're like dragons in the Bible. Yes, the dragon in the Hebrew sometimes points to the serpent as there's a sea monster, there's a Leviathan, there's a behemoth, there's all these creatures in the Old Testament and a few mentions in the New Testament. But this is what you need to know to understand today's sermon, that the dragon is basically this. It's a spiritual power which inspires chaos in our world. Okay, so whenever you come across descriptions of a dragon or the word dragon in the Bible, just keep in mind it's a spiritual force. Um, We talked about last week how this uh, David and Goliath story the description that Goliath has, like he has armors made out of scales and that he is six cubits tall, this number of six is repeated over and over and over again. It's referring to the dragon. So there's, um, in the in the book Revelation, they even say that the dragon has a name and it is Satan, right? Um, Paul the Apostle uses different terminologies. He uses the words powers and principalities to talk about the dragon. Okay, so that's all you need to know about the dragon because the dragon makes an appearance in the book of Revelation. Today we're talking about Revelation chapter 13 because chapter 13 is where the beasts, this plural, beasts show up, okay? So, if you're ready, um, this is not your typical Sunday school lesson. This is, we're going to the deep end, folks, okay? All right, here we go. Now, I was thinking, what is a good way to start you know, where's a good place to start when we start talking about the beast? And I thought, hmm, you know what? Every time I have to explain something that's really complicated, the best place to start is Star Wars, right? Okay, so, now one of my favorite characters in Star Wars is Obi-Wan Kenobi, the old one, right? <laughs> so in episode six, uh, in case you haven't seen it in the past 30, 40 years, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is, like, was Luke Skywalker's teacher for a short while, and he eventually died in episode four. Was that a, no spoilers, right? Okay, you guys seen it. Okay, episode six, two episodes later, he comes back as a force ghost and he's having a conversation with Luke. And Luke is like, like you told me that Darth Vader killed my father, but it turns out he is my father. And then, you know, he's like, well, from a certain point of view, I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you a lie. It's like, you totally lied, right? Okay, but there's a line that comes in that conversation that I think is very um, helpful to understand this beast character in the Bible. When Luke says, "No, I believe in my father. My father, I could still sense it. There's still good in him. Obi-Wan Kenobi's response, you guys remember what it is? This is what he says. He's more machine now than man. Right? He juxtaposes the word machine and man. And he says, The more machine he is, the less human he is. The more, more human he is, the less machine he is. It's like, We're fighting for its humanity. Okay, are you guys following so far? Now, if you were to replace the word machine with, next slide, beast, then you got the right idea, okay? In the Bible, humanity, well, God creates all these animals in the garden, right? And then, he breathes his spirit into the human, and it becomes an image of God, like a human, you become human, okay? The more image of God you have in you, the more human you are. So. The less image of God you have in you, the more beast you are. Okay, so here's like a graphical way of explaining it. The bigger the beast in you, the smaller the human that you are, less of a human you are. Conversely, the more human you are, the less beast you are. Are you guys tracking so far? Okay, so. Where is the first mention of the word beast? Well, the first mention of the word beast is not the first mention of the beast, okay? I know you're kind of like, what is God talking about? Genesis chapter 4. Here's the setup for that. There's these two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain wants to kill his brother Abel, okay? And as he's contemplating this, God comes to Cain, and this is what he says. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why are you feeling these emotions? Like I can sense in you that the dark side is taking over. right? Next slide. If you do what is right, you will not, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Like if you have mastery over this anger inside of you, you're gonna be okay. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And crouching, it's basically they're taking sin and they're personifying it as an animal here, as a beast. And it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we see that God has placed humanity as people who have mastery over the animals of the beast. In this conversation that God is having with Cain, he's saying, Cain, this sin, this evil that's crouching at your door is like the animal that you're supposed to have mastery over, but you don't have that right now. And so Cain allows the beast to take over his life, and he just ends up Murdering his brother, right? Here is a quote from a biblical scholar, Timothy Mackey. This is what he says Humans are like animals, but we have the spirit of God. That's what distinguishes us from them. For humans to take on the ethic of the beast is to go backwards from true humanity. The beast is pulling humanity away from true humanity, right? So, again, humanity and beast. The more beast there is, the less humanity there is. You're becoming more and more, you're being decreated into animal into beast. The more spirit of God you have in you, the the more humanity, the more spirit of God you have in you, the less beast you are. So in the book of Genesis, because this will evolve over time, the definition of beast is this. A person who lives according to their animalistic urges. You're being controlled by your appetites. If you feel like killing somebody, you kill that person. If you want somebody, you just take that person. If somebody's in the way, you push them aside. <clears throat> yeah. Why forgive somebody? Because it's easier just to give into the, the bitterness, bitterness inside of you and just live the way you want to live. No self-discipline. That's what it means to be a beast in the Bible. You're more beast now than you are human. OK, so are we, are we tracking so far? Okay, if you get that, then we can move on. Okay, because we have a lot to go over. Now eventually, and biblical authors, authors do this all the time, instead of using the word beast, they start using descriptors of the word beast to imply that the person is a beast. So instead of saying, oh no, you're a beast. No, no, they'll say like, I can see the fangs growing. I can see your the your hair looking like fur. Like they'll start using descriptors instead of just flat out saying beast, okay? so. A good example, and the most obvious example of this, is found in the book of Daniel. There's a king by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar, which is hard to spell, but you could do it. Okay, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is basically the king of this empire called the Babylonian Empire, and as he's walking around his kingdom, he's looking around thinking, man, like, I'm awesome. I conquered so many people. I've You know, I have kidnapped so many people. I have destroyed so many holy structures. I am the man, right? And then God knocks on his heart and gives him a warning. This is that warning. Let him, let him, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, be drenched with the dew of heaven. One of the the differences between a human and an animal is that an animal usually sleeps in the field. So when he wakes up in the morning, he's drenched in the dew of the morning, okay? And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let's keep going let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Times means years. Okay. So he's saying, because you're living in this way, you're going to eventually become more beast than you are human. Okay. And so this is a warning. And then he doesn't heed to the warning. And so it actually happens. Next verse. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar actually eat grass like an ox? If you understand Jewish literature, you'll know that you don't have to take this literally. It's basically saying, hey, he's turning into a beast. Next slide. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Right? It's like his hair just grew out, it's unkempt. From far away, it looks like he has feathers. His nails are looking like claws. And if you're wondering, man, the Bible is so weird that they would do this, right? Like they would describe people as animals. It turns out this literary style is not only in the Bible. People back then, the ancient world, they used beastly language to describe all people who are like this. I'll give you an example. This is from a guy named uh, Apollonius. And this is what he says. He's a teacher that traveled around the world. This is about 600 years after the book of Daniel was written. In traversing more of the earth than any man yet has visited, I have seen a host of Arabian and Indian wild beasts. He's talking about beasts here. Next, next part. But as, the, uh, but as to this, this wild beast, and he's talking about the Caesars of Rome. As to this wild beast, which, may call, which may many call a tyrant, I know not either how many heads he has, nor whether he has crooked talons, like claws, and jagged teeth." You see how this person is using animal language to describe a person to show how vicious this person is? right? So again, animal language in the Bible, beastly language in the Bible represents people who have given into their urges, but now, if you notice here, they're referring to people with power. Okay, so basically people who have powers like kings who live according to their urges are basically called beasts now. You see how it's evolved from anybody who acts like an animal to now rulers. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. And the reason we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7 is because if you understand Daniel 7, then you will understand Revelation 13. Okay, so this is one of those things where... like you have to have this knowledge in order to understand something later okay let's read this this is daniel who has a dream it's by the way have you guys had like weird dreams you just didn't understand okay so four of you guys had that okay (laughs) daniel has this really interesting uh benefit he's able to ask somebody in his dream what the dream meant and they actually explain it to them right so that's kind of cool like i wish i could do that like, gosh, what was that dream about? Like, well, what you're watching right now is, yeah. You know. Okay, Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great seas. Four great beasts, there's the beast, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Let's remember that right here, out of the sea. Where did the beasts come from? Good, good, not a trick question, good. Okay, <clears throat> so, because that's going to come up later. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. Okay. Oh, and by the way, I'm skipping some verses because I had to cut down 200 the slides to 80-something. So, okay. Let's look at the next one. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. Okay. Let's look at the third beast. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. They're not actual, you know, Leopards or bears, lions, they look like them, okay? And on the back, it had four wings like those of a bird, right? So we don't know what that is. Okay, and then after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. And notice this fourth beast, they don't say what animal it looks like, and that's on purpose. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Let's keep going. It had a large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different, than, uh, different from all the former beasts, and it had 10 horns. Heads, horns, crowns all represent power. Okay, so the more horns you have, the more powerful, pow- powerful you are. Let's keep going. Uh, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. So three fell off, one grew in its place. Let's keep going. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Yeah, this is not your typical dream, right? So you're like, oh, this is weird. Like, what does this mean? Well, the dream's not over yet. Let's keep going. <laughs> then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. It doesn't say who slain. It just says that these beasts were all killed eventually. And its bodies destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So we know that these beasts Beasts are temporary; they're not here forever. Let's keep going. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so just imagine: there's four beasts, and they're all killed, and then there's this guy in a cloud. What? You know, I don't know. Let's keep going. <laughs> he approached the ancient. Uh, oh, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. So it seems like the whole earth looked at the beast die and then saw a guy coming in the cloud, and they're like, oh, let's worship him. Like what kind of Daniel? Must have been something he ate. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, his, uh, his dominion, talking about the guy in the cloud, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, because the beasts were all destroyed, and the guy in the cloud, his will go on forever. Okay, so in case I completely lost you, or no, sorry, in case Daniel completely lost you, because that's not my fault. Okay, here's a little diagram I get. Okay, so these are clip art, so I, can't, I couldn't add wings to, you know, and. He had wings, too. And I got a cow, and I added a bunch of horns, like triangles. So that's, that's what that is. Okay, So he sees this. And he's like, what does this mean? And like I said, Daniel has the advantage because he could ask in his dream what the dream actually means. So let's find out. The four great beasts are four kings. OK, so they're kings. They're people that will rise from the earth But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. It's like, yeah, those four guys, the four animals, represents four kings. But don't worry, the people of God, you guys, your kingdom is going to last forever. It's like, oh, that's cool. Okay, so let's look at the diagram again. So you're wondering, if they represent people, who are these animal people, these beasts, right? Well, scholars have studied this, and they're looking at it and saying, well, okay, we know what the first one is because he looks like an animal, like a, like a lion has a lot of fur, right? And has wings in this story. And like that sounds like the description we just read about Nebuchadnezzar, right? So let's go to the next screen. So they said that the first one represents King Nebuchadnezzar and he represents the Babylonian Empire. And then the ruler that came after him is Cyrus the Great, who, who was the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? And after that, the leopard rep- is represented by Alexander the Great is represented by the leopard. Leopard is the fastest of these animals, okay? And Alexander the Great was the one that spread his empire the fastest. And he represents the Greek empire. And then we have the big question mark is, what is this crazy animal at the end? Well, what we find out eventually is that this represents the Caesars, all the Caesars of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Okay, and then according to this vision, it says that each of these animals are slaughtered. So next slide. So basically, let's draw an X on every single one of them, okay? And after all of them were slaughtered, it says that there was a man that came in the cloud called the Son of Man. Okay, so we're starting to decipher this. We're starting to understand this a little bit better. Okay, let's learn more about this one right here. Next verse. The fourth beast is a, is the, is a what, a fourth kingdom? I thought there were people. I thought there were kings, but they changed their mind and said, no, 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 it represents a kingdom. So at this point, what we learn is that a beast Not just represents a king, but also the king's kingdom, okay? That will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. So it's going to be a terrifying beast. Okay, let's keep going. Then the ten horns are the ten kings. Okay, so now we have the kings. So within the beast, the final fourth beast, right, which represents a kingdom, It's going to have many kings in it, okay? After them, another king will arise, differing from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. Like, okay, so what are we talking about here? Let's keep going. He will speak against the Most High, that's God, and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. Like, he's going to totally mess with the people of God. Let's keep going. So, in this case, what we know is that the beast... Before it was just any person, but now the beast represents kings and kingdoms that are driven by animalistic urges, by their appetites. Okay, are you guys following? Because all this information is necessary to understand Revelation chapter 13, here we go. And by the way, we're halfway through our slides now, so. Okay, are you guys okay? I know it's like fire hose of information. Okay, here we go, let's read verse one. The dragon, which is Satan, the force, the spiritual energy that is creating chaos in this world. Stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming, what does it say? Out of the sea, where have you seen that? The first verse of Daniel chapter seven. So immediately people who are reading this are like, oh, John who wrote this, is Like, oh, John is making a reference to the book of Daniel chapter seven. So already your mind is teleported there. It had 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns on its horns, so meaning this beast is really, really powerful, and on each head blasphemous names. Okay, so he's against God. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth that like, like that of a lion. Wait a minute, I thought there were separate beasts. Why are they all combined? The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So, let's look at the diagram again. This is from Daniel 7, right? But what John sees in John uh, Re- Revelation chapter 13, is, next slide, it's like a combination of all of them put together. This is his way of saying that this beast that he saw coming out of the sea is a combination of the worst attributes and features of all the kings that we've seen, all the beasts that we've seen in, in human, human history. It's like this is the worst of the worst. That this is like the final king that we need to battle, okay? So that's what he's trying to describe here, okay? Next verse. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. Fatal meaning he should have died from it, right? But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. I was like, wow, okay, but this is really interesting. Here's a beast who should have died, but he was healed, he was brought back to life, okay? And everybody's like, wow, look at that beast. Now you would think when they're like, wow, look at that beast, they would say, so let's worship the beast. No, look at the next verse. People worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Like the beast does some miracle, he, he was dying and he came back to life. And now everyone's like, worship the beast and the dragon. Like they knew where the beast, he's giving credit to the, to the dragon. They're like, whoa, that's great. So it's a dragon. Well, thank you so much, dragon. Okay, let's keep going. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So gaining a lot of power and influence. Let's keep going. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, they will be killed. We're talking about the first century here. We're not talking about future events. In the first century when this was written, the Roman Empire was at its peak, a lot of power. And a lot of Christians were being persecuted, right? And John is writing this and using apocalyptic literature language, saying, guys, a lot of bad things are about to come your way. Don't fight back. If they're going to capture you, kidnap you, that's what's going to happen to you. If they're going to stab you with a sword, that's what's going to happen to you. You're not going to be pulled out of this mess. You're going to have to endure it. Let's keep going. Then, the, oh, oh, so I want to focus on this verse right here. The the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. So there's a we know who these are. These are Caesars. There's a Caesar who had a fatal wound and should have died, but he didn't die. So who is John talking about here? Well, there's two options, and both of them point to the same thing. So it doesn't really matter which one you pick. But first one, okay. So by the time when John is writing this letter, this letter called Revelation. Um, He, the Caesar that was in power at the time, his name was Caesar Domitian. Caesar Domitian, okay? So he could be referring to anybody from Domitian and before. He can't predict the future, so he's talking about, okay, it's one of these Caesars. Well, there's two characters that fits this description. The first one is Domitian's father. His name is Vespasian. This is Caesar Vespasian. If you look over here, he has a wound right here. He got that wound in battle, and he should have died, but he survived, So a lot of people called him the beast that had a fatal head wound and was healed. Okay, that's option number one. Option number two is probably the worst Caesar and the most, the craziest Caesar of them all. His name is Caesar Nero. This guy, Caesar Nero. He reigned for about 14 years. And the reason why I say he's crazy is because he really is crazy. Like, he would kill people on a whim. He killed his own mother and his own father. Well, he killed his father because his mom tricked him to feed his father poison, and then he lost his mind, and later on he killed his own mother at his own will. Um, he we used to dip Christians in hot wax and lit them on fire in his garden and run on his chariot naked around them, screaming, oh, you're the light of the world, and it's just mocking them, right? Like, he's crazy. He burnt down Rome and blamed You know, like, <clears throat> he's just crazy. You got to take my word for it, okay? But eventually, after 14 years of, of ruling... Um, pe- his own people started to turn his back on him and he started feeling insecure. And so one day he decided to take four of his closest guys, went about four miles outside of his headquarters, and he had his four guys dig a hole in the ground and he was gonna commit suicide. But right before he did it, he looked at the grave and thought, uh, maybe not, I'm a little scared. So one of you four, do it, show me how it's done. And so one of them actually takes his own life, falls into the grave hole and it's like, oh, okay, so that's how you do it, okay, my turn. I still can't do it. Hey, can one of you guys stab me from the back? and You know, like, even, like, he's just weird, okay? And just, okay. But because it wasn't done in public, it was done in the middle of the night, far away from headquarters, it was done in private. The story about Nero dying in this grave, right, or committing suicide and how noble or not noble it was or whatever it was, okay, <clears throat> this, the rumor spread. But not everybody saw the dead body. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So over time, people are starting to say, maybe he really didn't die. Maybe he's in hiding. Kind of like Elvis, right? Or Tupac. I don't know. People are thinking that he's still alive, right? Okay. So this term started to come up in in their culture. It's this. It's called Nero. I'm going to say this wrong. Redivivus. Is that right? Nero redivivus. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Basically, (laughs) Nero redivivus is this term that they used back then, basically saying, Nero is one day going to come back. As a matter of fact, he died in AD 68, 68, okay? Well, so, so they thought. He committed suicide in 68. In the year 69, there were reports of somebody saying, I thought I just saw Nero playing the lyre, which is like a stringed instrument, right? And he looked like, the guy who was playing the lyre and singing, he looked like Nero which is like a big deal because then the next caesar is not supposed to be enthroned because the the current caesar is still alive right so they did a big investigation on this they went to look for that kid that that this boy that was that looked like nero turns out he was just a doppelganger so they're like okay he's not real nero is dead no worries but then 11 years after that in the year uh oh no no yeah yeah in the year 80 they found another person singing, playing the liar, that looked like Nero. And they said, Oh my goodness, he's still alive. So they did an investigation on that. It turns out again he was like look alike. I guess Nero has that face that looks like everybody in Rome, right? So they're like, okay, that's not him. But the rumors are still around. They're like, oh Nero is gonna come back. Nero is gonna come back, right? And then twenty years since his death, so about eighty-eight AD, there is a place called Parthia who came out and claimed that they had Nero in their position. And people started freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, Nero has been alive for the last 20 years? And you know what is he doing for 20 years? Is he prob- he's probably building an army to come back and destroy Rome. Because he burnt down Rome, might as well destroy the rest of the empire, right? Turns out that wasn't true, OK? But that rumor was happening around the time of Domitian, which is when John was alive, who wrote this. So when they talk about there's a beast with a fatal wound, right? that was miraculously healed, he could be talking about Nero or Vespasian. He could be talking about either of those guys. But either way, the idea is the same, that there is a beast, right, that is either who was healed from a fatal wound or has rumors that, they heard rumors that he might be coming back from a fatal wound. Either way, that's the point here, okay? We'll come back to that later. I know this is a lot of information. Let's keep going. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb, so it looked like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Let's keep going. It exercised all the authorities of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth as its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So beast number two, his job is to point everybody to beast number one. Ah, right. Okay. Beast number one's job is to do some crazy stuff that points everybody to the dragon. Do you see that connection here? Okay, let's keep going. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven, which is a reference to the Old Testament. The prophet, like Elijah, made fire come from the sky to the earth in full view of the people. Okay, let's keep going. Because of the signs, it was given power. Uh, because of the of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deserved. A, I'm sorry, I can't see. It. it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. So this second beast seems like something that looks religious, almost because it has all these words that points to religion, right? In the Roman Empire, religion and government were not separated. Caesar demanded to be called God, okay? And they had priests on the payroll that made sure that everybody worshiped him as God. So we have these two beasts combined together that represents the Roman Empire. The thing you need to know about the second beast is this, this detail, that he looked like a lamb but he sounds like a dragon. He looks like the savior of the world, he looks like Jesus, he, he has that face, you know, right? But when he opens his mouth and starts talking, he only speaks destruction. A religious organization that looks like Jesus, but talks about destruction. That'll never happen. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, next. <laughs> this second beast forced, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Have you guys heard of this before? If you watched any of those bad movies, then you're probably like, oh, the mark of the beast. Let's keep going. So that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The mark of the beast. And the only way that you could get it, I mean, the, the reason you have to get it is without it, you can't buy or sell, meaning you're going to starve, you're going to go poor if you don't receive the mark of the beast. So if you want to live, you have to get the mark of the beast. Well, what is the mark of the beast? This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. So it's a person. That number is 666. Um, If you guys have, like, an old translation or an old, you know, if you do do a little little digging, some translations of the Bible will even say 616, okay? Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking because a lot of us were raised on really bad Christian stories that talk about getting left behind or something, right? Okay. Uh, Let me just share this with you. In the days of Martin Luther, so that's, like, hundreds of years ago, he claimed that the Pope was the guy, the, 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 the Pope at the time, I think it was Pope Leo, he was the beast. It turns out he wasn't. In more recent days, people thought Ronald Reagan was the beast because there's six, Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters in first, middle, and last name, he must be the beast, right? Or some people, and for those of you who are under the age of, oh, over the age of 40, maybe, you guys probably heard of Gorbachev, right? Like, oh, he's the guy with the beast because he has a mark, he has a birthmark on his forehead. That's the mark of the beast, yo, come on, right? Some people might think, "Oh no, it's a microchip," you know, because I know we have a watch that could buy things. What if they had it implanted in you, like, you know, like every all your medical information is like, "Oh, don't get that microchip; that's the mark of the beast." More recently, people think, "Oh, don't get that vaccine; that vaccine is the mark of the beast," because, and if if that's the mark of the beast, and the one who pushed it on us, which would be Fauci, I guess he's the beast. I don't know, right? But here's the problem with those theories, okay? (laughs) This was written to the people in the first century, right? So 2,000 years ago, okay? And it says here, it calls for what? Wisdom, right? And what, you can also calculate it. Do you think people in the first century are like, hold on, let me bring out my ancient abacus calculator and figure out, oh my gosh, it's Gorbachev. Well, it's, like it's a microchip computer. Oh, I, how did you figure that out? Well, I did my math. I, you know, John told me to do some calculations, and I figured it out. His name is Fauci. Right? Like, no, that's ridiculous, right? The implication here is that the people who read this in the first century, they did their calculations and were able to figure out who it was in their own time. They're not trying to predict some future character that's going to be. By the way, people call this Antichrist. Book of Revelation never mentions Antichrist once. Right? A lot of things you know about this, that you think you know about this, is mostly cultural, not biblical. Okay, so who is the guy with the mark of the beast, or who is the guy that's making people take the mark of the beast? Well, as it turns out, they're pointing to one of the characters we just talked about, which is Caesar Nero. How do we know this? In Hebrew, Greek, and Latin cultures, they didn't have numbers. They used something called gematria which is you use letters to represent numbers. So Roman numerals, for example. I is one, V is five, X is 10, and so forth, right? Well, in the Hebrew culture, they also had numbers associated with letters. So if you were to write the name Nero, Caesar Nero, in, in Hebrew, in, using Hebrew alphabet, this is what it would spell. Neron, that's how they said it, Neron. And N is 50, R is 200, six is O is six, and then N is another 50, right? And the word Caesar, which is Kaiser, which is QSR, because they didn't have vowels back then, um, would end up being this way. If you add it all up, you get this, 666. By the way, if you're like, why is it Neron? Why does that le- end there, right? So if you take that off, then it ends up being 616. This is why there's a variance in the way that people calculate the numbers in the ancient world. Okay, so this was not just a biblical thing. People who lived in the Roman Empire back then also recognized the mark of the beast belonged to Caesar Nero, okay? So it's not just the, the Christians who are like, oh, it must be Nero. Everybody else, even people who weren't Christians, recognized this to be true. Okay, now, the whole point of this passage right here, John is not telling us this so he, we could do some, like, math problems on a sheet of paper and figure it out, I was like, ah, because even before we got to this verse that people were reading this, they already knew it was Caesar Nero, they already knew and this is just confirmation like oh yeah of course it's this 666 right so what is the purpose of this verse right here the key description of this verse right here that he wants us to take away from this is the fact that the mark of the beast is put where what part of your body right hand and the forehead okay not so that you can make quick transactions with your microchip. That's not the reason. Or, I mean, you can scan your head on the barcode. And I don't know, right? Okay. This is a callback to one of the most holy passages of the Old Testament. This is called the Shema. Shema, you know how in Christianity, John 3.16 is like the defining verse of our faith? Like, for God so loved the world. Most of you guys memorized it, right? Well, in the Jewish culture, that three, John 3.16 verse is Deuteronomy 6. It's called a Shema, and I'll show it to you right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is a Shema, it goes on. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children, not force it upon them, impress them, meaning lead by example, Look at mom and dad doing the thing that we're supposed to do and the kids like, wow, okay, well that's how I'm gonna live my life. Impress it on them. Let's keep going. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. At all times of the day, be an example to your children. That's what they're saying here. Let's keep going. Tie them as a symbol on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. This is figurative way of saying, in all that you think, in all that you do, do it with the Lord, the Shema, do it with the Lord's way in mind, okay? Write them on the door frames of your household and on your gates, meaning when you leave the house, that's the last thing you see. When you come home, that's the first thing you see. Like, like just let it soak over you. Like, this is what you have to live by, okay? Over time, people started taking this verse literally instead of figuratively. So even today, if you can see here, they bind these things on their foreheads, and they bind these things on their hands. These are called phylacteries. It's like a small box, and you take that scripture that we just read, they roll it up in a small scroll, and they put it in a box, and they put it on their foreheads and on their hands. So what is John John trying to say in Revelation 13? The dragon is basically saying, if God is going to do that, then I'm going to do the same thing. If he's going to have the Shema on his hand and his forehead, then I'm going to force. For over here, it's like set an example, right? Over here, it's like I'm going to force them because if they don't do it, they don't eat, right? So I'm going to force them to take my mark on their forehead and on their hand. Are you guys following what's going on here? Because John is making a huge point here, and I'm just going to show it to you right here, okay? So far, what we know about this beast is that they have temporary power. God has eternal power right it says the son of man coming on the clouds he is going to be reigning forever whereas these guys they were slaughtered right okay and we also know they have a lot of power because they talked about how they had crowns horns heads and you know they want to take over the world they want to sit on the throne right these guys are power hungry whereas god already has the power next we also learn that there's this thing called the unholy trinity in christianity we have this thing called the holy spirit that points us to jesus and jesus points to the father what does the beast do? Beast number two points to beast number one. Beast number one points to the dragon. They're trying to mimic what God is doing, right? Let's keep going. Next, we have this pseudo-resurrection. Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he comes back to life. Well, what does the beast do? Well, he gets a fatal wound, rubs some neosporin on it, and he's back to life. And it was like, ooh, you know, this is their imitation of God, right? Next, forced shema. We just talked about that. Our God wants us to to live according to his ways, right, And everything that we do and everything that we think. Well, the beast wants to do the same thing except his version of it, right? Let's keep going. It says he looks like the lamb. And when Jesus speaks, a sword comes out of his mouth, which is like a weird imagery in Revelation. But basically, every time he speaks, he speaks the truth. What does the dragon and, and the beast do? Every time they speak, he sounds like the dragon. It sounds like destruction. Right? So what is John trying to tell us in Revelation 13? John is revealing to us the whole purpose behind why the dragon is doing what he's doing. He's trying to be like God. As a matter of fact, the dragon is trying to take God's place. But there's something else that's happening here. John is also mentioning because he points us back to uh, um, Daniel chapter 7 he says, like, look, this dragon desires the worship of the people. Like, this seems like that's his end goal. I want to take God's throne because I want the whole world to worship me, Ah, right? But it turns out the dragon has these puppets called the beast, meaning if you give into your urges, if you give into your animalistic tendencies, then basically you become the prime target of becoming the dragon's puppet." You do things to bring worship to the dragon, right? So John is also warning us that there is a little beast in all of us. You can also be the beast. If you keep giving in, remember what we talked about? The more beast-like you are, the less human you are. The more the image of God you have in you, the less beast you are, okay? And he's saying, be very careful. When people in this age, first century, when people were to attack you, if they take a sword and they were to stab you, don't fight back. Sure, you defend yourself, but don't become like one of them. If they're going to take you away, then they're going to take you away. Why, why, why is he saying this? Because in the book of Revelation, we also discover this. We learned that the victory of God does not come through slaughtering other people. The victory of God comes from sacrifice. When we lay our lives down for other people, when we do things that are the opposite of what the dragon wants, That's how we win this battle, right? So he says, be careful. There's a dragon, there's a beast in all of us. So make sure that you have discipline. Make sure you show love. Make sure you have, you know, generosity in your life. So there is a phrase that people use in the first century to combat this. Because remember, these regular human beings are like, wow, this dragon is very powerful. Wow, this beast has all the power in the world. How are we supposed to fight this? How are we, what are we supposed to do? And they came up with this idea. If the dragon, all he wants is worship from us, right, then what we need to do is this, and they call it worship as defiance. If what the dragon wants is our worship, then let's use our worship and point it towards, towards the lamb, towards Jesus. That will drain the power out of the dragon and it'll give power to the lamb. Right? And not only that, when we worship God, we feel like the spirit of God is filling us in. So we're becoming less and less beast and more and more human. So worship was a form of defiance back then. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not making any statements about our church here, but I'm just saying, worship is more than just singing. As a matter of fact, in the first century, worship was more action than it was singing. Worship was showing patience to somebody who was getting on your nerves. If you give into your animalistic tendencies, you will yell at them and say, get out of the way, right? But instead he's like, no, no, I have patience. I'm long-suffering. People who show grace, that is an act of worship. That is a defiance to the devil. When somebody hurts you and you say, no, I'm gonna forgive you instead, that is an act of defiance to the beast. If, if you were like, I'm gonna be generous, I'm gonna give, that is an act of defiance and yes, also singing. Worship, singing, singing, musical worship. Singing to Jesus about how great he is. That is also an act of defiance. And so the first century was just filled with a culture of worship. If there's an abandoned child on the street, we're going to pick that child up and, and adopt that child because that is how we're going to fight this evil force that's in this world right now. That is how the Roman Empire is going to come down. And guess what? It did. Because in the Roman Empire women had very little value and especially little girls babies had no value and so when they gave birth and they realized hey we have a boy and a girl let's get rid of the girl and so there were babies that were scattered out in the streets and history tells us do you know who picked them up and raised them christians the church went out into the streets picked up these babies and raised them and they were raised to be godly women and they taught their children, who became the leaders of the, of the Roman world in the next generation, and eventually from the inside, the Roman Empire started to crumble. Worship as defiance. This is why it's so important that we understand worship more than singing. That worship is about living the life of Jesus here and now. Amen? So what we're gonna do right now is we're going to have a time of worship. And uh, I'm going to trust that you guys are going to be doing the whole, you know, showing grace, showing patience, you know, outside the four walls of this church. But today we're going to go into a time of musical worship. So I'm going to invite the worship team up.